0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And It's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 o'clock tonight. The annual duck slaughter on Victorian wetlands. I'll be speaking with Laurie Levy for the 31st time. He's the director of the campaign against duck shooting and he's been doing it every year. Remembering US nuclear tests on the Marshall Islands with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. The death of a... Very respected doctor in Venezuela, Dr Marcello Rojas, And Coral Winter, a friend from Socialist Alliance, will be talking about his life. Part one of an interview with journalist Colin McNaughton about his recent visit to Mexico and Cuba. Publication or part publication of a secret army document on Australia's involvement in the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Dr Peter Wig, who is the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. But first, let's see what Mr Kevin Lehealy has had to say about the last week.
2: A week, Jane, listener, when the Cabinet Room looked like a big bowl of spaghetti with meatballs with these long, flexible tubes attached to the very important Minister of State spaces and bums. The tubes converging on this giant turbine-looking thing on the roof... These tubes you're wearing, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull look, the true assertive leader behind his face mask, are our answer to True Blue Aussie's energy crisis. It's ingenious. The Minister for Fossils, uh, Josh frydem Icebergs interjected excitedly. Yes, yes, thank you, Josh. Uh, Now, here's the plan, and this will explain why we fed you that very hot, very sloppy curry last night. Every five minutes, well, well, every ten minutes, actually, we will all fart simultaneously, and every other five minutes, we will all burp simultaneously. And studies prepared for us by the Productivity Commission and the Fossils Profits Council indicate that that combined with our normal verbal contributions, we will generate enough hot air to keep the nation's lights on. So here goes. When I say three, one, two, three. The ingenious plan worked for the first two cycles, but unfortunately, like all new technology, a bug got into the system on the third. The collective ministerial farts bypassing the turbine altogether and flowing directly into the facial attachments. Cabinet last seen gasping for air. Quick, open the windows! Trying to open the door and yelling, who farted? Bit silly, seeing they all had, and a number of our esteemed servants also suggested a bit of fine-tuning in the very hot, very sloppy curry department, but in the interest of sensitivity I'll leave you to imagine the problems there, listener. Some cruel observers suggested Malcolm's grand plan to dig a few more tunnels through an Alpine National Park was policy on the run, which Malcolm naturally denied, but sitting with his tubes attached he did concede it was looking like policy on the runs. But nothing exposes the common sense of the caring business class and the irrationality of the socialists than this energy business, business being the key, efficiency. When social energy was privatized into non-social energy, we were promised efficiency, competition and lower prices, and the mind but boggles at what prices would be like if our utilities were still in the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector but the nothing exposes bit. When the South True Blue Aussie, a rational socialist government, announced a multi-billion plan to guarantee ongoing reliability, the the rational caring business class lot in Canberra denounced this vehemently, angrily, as exposing socialism. The profligate socialist government was using taxpayers' money. It exuded shock. Using taxpayers' money to pay for the government's big, big mistakes like thinking climate change might be climate change, on top of which South Troubluwazi had jumped the gun, not waiting for the result of the caring business class inquiry into energy problems. We must wait for that report before making rash decisions. Then the very next day, the rational caring business class lot in Canberra announced the multi-billion plan digging tunnels through an alpine national park to guarantee ongoing reliability and praise themselves for a sensible use of taxpayers' money to ensure the efficient privatised big energy companies could show how efficient they were when handed the public purse. And obviously they didn't have to wait for the inquiry report because they didn't have to wait for the inquiry report. And the big energy companies kept pointing out they had to export all our gas because they had to export all our gas. And it wasn't their fault. It was the irrational socialist state government's faults for not letting them get at more gas because the gas they can't get at is the gas marked for domestic use. And, well, as we reported last week, one of those great and revered energy giants, AG, held to consumers, is now investigating building a multi-billion floating terminal to import gas to meet the domestic shortage. So, clearly, we must declare, is capitalism rational or is capitalism rational? Rational, but very annoyed, the Minister for Sounding Important, Christopher Payne, in that. Not just because he was hamstrung by the tubes attached to his sundry parts as he burped and farted himself silly, but because the new secretary of the evil ACTU, Sally McManus, had said there were times when unions had a responsibility to break bad laws. This is the sort of anarchic Marxist trap we had on campus in the 70s. Poor Christopher was righteously petulant. Respect for the law is the foundation of a civilized society. Uh, so if you and Malcolm and Macaglia kosh the workers pass a law to make it against the law for unions to behave as unions, society would collapse if they broke that law and acted like unions? Collapse! The law is the law. There is no reason why under the law unions cannot not behave like unions. The law allows them total freedom not to act like a union. And if caring employers break the law? Unlike evil unions, caring employers have too much respect for the law to break the law. And anyway, the law gives them carte blanche to act like caring employers. And Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition also disagreed with Sally, declaring unions must obey the law, making it illegal to act like a union, and can use the democratic processes if they wish to change the law. And yeah, yeah, good point, little Billy. That's been such a huge success in the annals of working class history. But Christopher and Malcolm and Michaelia must have been shattered at the disrespect for the law expressed by that federal court, His Honour, Tony North, in a case brought by the Smash the Union's Jackboots Commission. Well, as we all recall, Tony North's role in the maritime dispute, so he's obviously biased. A case in which two evil union officials dropped into a Melbourne airport building site they were passing to have a cup of tea and a chat with a mate for which Jack Boots' supremo Nigel Hodge kissed the bosses, charged them with a number of offences, including not giving the proper notice to enter a work site, and how's this for having no respect for the law he's supposed to uphold? He's on a blasted Nigel and the Commission for wasting time and taxpayers' money taking officials to court for having a cup of tea with a mate. It was astounding, he went on. Nigel had briefed silk and held days of hearings over such a minuscule, insignificant affair. For goodness sake, I don't know what this inspectorate is doing. Thank goodness the inspectorate and Nigel know what they're doing. They're upholding the law that must be respected, that makes it illegal for a union to be a union. And despite this Tony North person suggesting that Jack Boots and Nigel drop the case, Nigel is insistent on pursuing it, showing he at least has respect for the law. So look, maybe it's time we had a good hard look at the sort of people we put on the bench. We, we can't have maverick judges suggesting the law should use a bit of common sense to balance that a sensible decision showing respect for the law. The fair work, true blue he no longer work choices, just looks like it con mission, has ruled that a maritime worker with 30 years in the industry committed a sackable offence by calling that great friend of the workers Chris Lye again, caring employer's hero of the maritime dispute, he of the balaclavas and dogs and Dubai train killer scab set up, who recently chaired cruel the workers ports, sackable offence by calling Chris Lye again a pig on facebook poor chris a pig although the commissioner didn't explain where it was okay to call chris Lie again a pig but not content with condemning the worker to unemployment after 30 years deputy commissioner big supremo reg hamilton the boss's side played headmaster He also appeared to show a less-than-respectful approach to management and to management policy. One would expect better after 30 years of employment. (laughs) Come on. We reckon we'd expect nothing less after 30 years of um, of employment, especially where Chris Lye again's concerned. Who's Reg kidding? Where's he been? Obviously he hasn't had a slave his guts out for a living. The pig comment arose because Chris Trudeform was attempting to force a 12% pay cut on the workers. Well, not force, convince them it made sense. And we have to agree with Reg that workers must respect Chris and a management that wants to slash their wages. After all, they would have had the workers' interests at heart. And slashing workers' wages is not showing disrespect for your workforce. Chris would never disrespect workers or unions. Finally, revealing the government is sitting in the cabinet room burping and farting is not, repeat, not offending or insulting them. And we must have the right to say these things. Offending and insulting must cover truly serious offence and insult such as US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the Pause, very own security forces declaring Donald lied just because... Donald lied. He has every right to be offended, whereas his predecessor, whom he lied about, has no case to be offended or insulted. So hope that explains what this big, critically important national issue is all about, listener. Good afternoon.
1: And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, he'll have on his other hat, which is city limits, of course. And special guest is John Passant. Passant, who is an expert commentator on all things to do with the economy. So that's 9 till 10 tomorrow morning. In confirming the duck slaughter season would open on Saturday the 18th of March and continue on the 12th of June, the Minister for Agriculture said that duck season is a customary trip away for many families and an important contributor to the rural economy neither which are true no mention of the senseless slaughter of defenseless birds by mainly men dressed like camouflaged soldiers laurie levy from the group coalition against duck shooting was back on the wetlands again this year his 31st consecutive year i spoke with laurie late yesterday i spoke to you on I think it was Thursday afternoon, you were a bit apprehensive about the weekend. Where did you end up going?
3: We did our surveys on Friday afternoon and the Friday evening. Most of the shooters were concentrating on bottom marsh, part of the masses. There's top marsh, middle mass, and bottom marsh and they were at bottom marsh. That's where we went on the Saturday morning and quite frankly... Uh, It was like a war zone. It was like the old days in the late 80s, early 90s. Shooters started 10, 20 minutes early. The amount of guns that were going off, it was obviously a show of strength to try and impress uh, the government, I think. But everything got shot. It, it, It reminded me of the box flat massacre that took place in 2013 where everything got shot. Over the next two days, rescuers brought in just on 810 birds. There were 68 rare and threatened freckled ducks and also 21 threatened bluebill ducks uh, amongst the victims. Now, if we brought in that many, there'd be a lot more out there as well that we didn't recover.
1: What's your estimate of the number of, I suppose it's mainly men that were there and and the ages?
3: It was hard for us to estimate the numbers, but the Game Management Authority said there were about a 1,000 shooters there. What had happened was that there were very few shooters on any of the other wetlands in northwest Victoria. They were mainly concentrating on this one wetland, and they went mad. They went berserk. You know, they were silly enough. They know that duck shooting is on the line, and instead of going out and at least obeying the law to try and salvage what is going to be banned at some stage they went berserk in front of the police there was a large contingency of police there and also in front of the game management authorities senior compliance officers who stood on the shore basically powerless to do anything anything about the barrage of shooting that was coming from the northern end
1: well how many of them did they charge with starting the shooting before they were supposed to
3: we don't know how many shooters charged but I know that uh, I was arrested within or even just before the duck shooting season started because a shooter in front of us hit a bird and it was a small pink-haired duck that hit the water and was wounded and I rushed down to pick it up take it back to the mobile veterinary clinic and after I'd done that I was uh, arrested and probably will see, receive a $930 fine and I've been banned from the wetlands for the whole of the season again.
1: Just explain to me what people are supposed to do when they see an injured and stressed bird in the water.
3: Jala Pulford's office expects rescuers to stay out of the water until 10 o'clock in the morning. She expects you to stand on the shore to watch the cruelty and the violence being inflicted on Australia's magnificent native water birds and just to stand there and not do anything and we can't do that and there also is in the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act it's a crime not to help a wounded or sick or injured animal you know you have a choice which law do you break I'd prefer to break the government's law that tries to keep rescuers out of the water And we've never, ever held back. If water birds need help, we go in to help them. And we are in there all the time.
1: Were any of the rescuers fearful of confrontations with the the shooters?
3: Rescuers are always prepared for that sort of thing. Our campaign is certainly an action campaign, but we're totally non-violent. We don't look for trouble. Our role is to, I guess, act In the same way the Red Cross would act in a war zone, our role is to help the innocent victims, and of course we do try and keep water birds away from the guns as well, and that does sometimes antagonise shooters.
1: Were there any children on the water this year?
3: Yes, there were. There were kids as young as eight and ten out there with the fathers, and they don't get booked for being on the water. It should be their fathers that are getting booked for taking their kids out there, but That's quite legal under the Andrews Labor government by the look of it. But if a rescue goes out to help a wounded bird, bang, $930 fine and ordered off for the season.
1: I remember reading, Laurie, that someone, one of the duck shooters, says it's a a customary trip away for many families, an important contribution to, to the rural economy. Just look at those two things. First, the welcome trip away for the family.
3: Well, the family doesn't go with shooters. We've been on the the wetlands, Jan, for 30 years now. Duck shooting has always been very much a male, macho, antisocial activity. And you see very few women out there. I know that Field and Game Australia, they've been pushing for women to go out there, but but it hasn't worked. Duck shooting very much is a male-dominated activity. The numbers of duck shooters have dropped from 100,000 in 1986 down to 16,000 last year, according to the Game Management Authority. And duck shooters overall just make up 0.4% of Victoria's population. So they couldn't be bringing money into regional Victoria. And in fact, the Auditor General's report in 2015 said that regional cities are doing well, but small country towns are going broke. And that was supported by SGS Economics. They said the same thing and, and they supported the Auditor General's report. The only way that regional Victoria can really survive. I mean, the town of Sea Lake was going broke. Businesses were closing down in Sea Lake. There was no move by the government to help out, but suddenly Chinese tourists started arriving. And they were arriving to go to Lake Tyrrell, which is very close to Sea Lake, where they, they could get a wonderful view of the stars. So what's happened there is, to cut a long story short, Chinese tourists have rescued the town of Sea Lake in northwest Victoria. And any nature-based tourism industry that will come in once duck shooting is banned will be modelled, I'd say, on the Phillip Island Penguin Model because Phillip Island was set up really by John Kane when he was Premier of Victoria to help save the penguins and to also establish a thriving nature-based tourism industry which has been successful on both fronts. And, of course, Phillip Island is the model because they get 650,000 visitors each year. Of those visitors, 150,000 are Chinese tourists. The Chinese tourism market is growing all the time. So Phillip Island earned $655 million. They earn 40% of regional Victoria's economy. The model there is, is sitting there. When you look at towns like Kerrang, which really are struggling, they're really struggling financially. They've got Ramsar wetlands, about 10 Ramsar wetlands, wetlands of international importance sitting in their backyard and they don't use it for tourism. I was talking to the mayor up there a number of weeks ago at a, at a breakfast with the birds that was put on by the North Central Catchment Management Authority, which was a terrific day, um, but the town is in trouble. They have the wetlands of international importance in their backyard and those wetlands are only used by a handful of shooters to shoot birds. They're missing out completely.
1: Have you challenged the government or government ministers or departments to show where this 500 million or so goes to, which the shooters are supposed to put into the economy f- during duck slaughter?
3: The first report that came out on that was criticised as a dubious report. It was brought out by the previous Agriculture Minister, Peter Walsh. The thing that shocked me more than anything is when Jala Pulford from the Labor Party took over the role as Minister for Ag. She was repeating all of the spin that Peter Walsh used and telling regional Victorians they were earning $439 million from duck shooting. When the report talks about that as covering all types of hunting with duck shooting only bringing in a few million dollars. The government really isn't being honest with regional victorians because they're putting duck shooters who make up only 0.4 percent of victoria's population ahead of regional victorians
1: you maintain that the governments in victoria don't ban the the um, killing of native wild birds because they're frightened of you losing votes from the country people but surely it's happened in the other states and It hasn't brought down governments or seriously disrupted Parliament or anything like that?
3: That's correct. We believe that by banning duck shooting would enhance Labor's vote, and especially leading into the November 2018 election, because these days you've got people in regional Victoria supporting a ban on duck shooting. You've got regional people in, in small country towns talking to their local media, saying that duck shooting should be banned, nature-based wetlands tourism introduced in the town of Bourne. The local indigenous group, uh, the Zha Zha Wurong, they want duck shooting banned on their wetlands and they want wetlands tourism to be introduced because the town of Bourne is in serious trouble financially and that and that's the way to go, get rid of duck shooters and bring in tourists.
1: How many were arrested altogether?
3: We don't know how many rescuers, probably about 10 to 15. We we won't find out until they start receiving their summonses.
1: And what's it going to cost?
3: Well, rescuers are being fined $930 just for entering the water before 10 o'clock in the morning.
1: And if they disobey that?
3: They would be taken to court and I think the fine goes up to a steep $8,500 or something around there. But look, rescuers have never been deterred. The fines have been going up for a long time now, probably for about 25 years, from $100 up to $930. And our rescue team was just magnificent this year. They worked about 14 hours a day. The weather was stifling up there but they just kept working under extremely difficult conditions with guys with guns out there. The fines don't really worry them. The government wants to hurt rescuers. The thing that hurts them more than anything else is if a rescuer is bringing in a wounded bird and they're stopped by a compliance officer and they have the bird taken off them and the bird is put down by having its head ripped off or something like that, that traumatises rescuers. And, and the thing that hurts them, Jan, is they feel that they've failed that bird by getting stopped and not being able to get that bird to the vet. And it is a terrible feeling. And, and all rescuers, no matter where they come from, what sort of work they do, they're there because they have a great deal of empathy for, for Australia's native water birds. And when they rescue a bird, the most important thing in their lives is getting that bird back to the mobile vet clinic for a compliance officer to pull up a, a rescuer and take the bird off them only to kill it is soul-destroying. And, of course, a lot of compliance officers are duck shooters.
1: What's the variety of birds that you saw at the weekend?
3: We saw freckle ducks. We, we saw bill ducks, which are threatened. We saw grebes, which are uh, protected. We saw coot, which are protected. And we saw beautiful game species and there's no rhyme or reason why these birds are on the hit list. Pacific black ducks, grey teal, chestnut teal and we have such a magnificent number of water birds out there that from a tourist point of view, it's magnificent but the moment the barrage of shooting starts in the morning, the birds are either dead, wounded or they're flown off and Daniel Young from the Shooters and Fishers Party is trying to tell everyone that duck shooting can coexist with a tourism industry. Well, it can't. It would be the equivalent of the government allowing penguins to be to be shot down at Phillip Island. Well, you wouldn't have a six hundred and fifty-five million dollar tourist industry if that happened. Duck shooting, you know, really belongs in the nineteen fifties. With the late Sir Henry Bolte.
1: Well, it doesn't it, belong anywhere.
3: No, it doesn't, but uh, I can see it in the 1950s people were not so much conservation minded. It certainly doesn't belong in the 21st century. And uh, public opinion is on side, on the water bird side. A Roy Morgan poll in October shows that uh, 87% of Victorians, the city, and Country people want duck shooting bans. And the most important thing from our perspective is there are groups now in regional Victoria doing their own media. People from around Cancurran in central Victoria to to Lake Bolac, Tower Hill, down near Warrnambool, to Mildura, to uh, Horsham, and up around uh, the eastern part of Australia as well. People are coming out, forming groups talking to their local media and getting publicity on the fact that they don't want duck shooters in their backyard.
1: Have you been to the steps of Parliament or is that tomorrow?
3: We just got back from displaying 810 native water birds outside the Premier's office today. We did that at 10 o'clock. We had uh, 68 rare and threatened freckle ducks, 21 Bluebills, which are threatened, and, and we had a, a vast array of water birds just sitting outside the Premier's office. Of course, politicians will never come down to see the carnage that, that they sanction. So, you, you know, we take the carnage, Jan, to them.
1: Get a good night's sleep tonight, maybe. <laughs>
3: okay, thanks very much for that, Jan.
1: And that's Laurie Levy, the director of. The Campaign Against Duck Shooting. If you'd like to help, get onto their website, Campaign Against Duck Shooting, and see what you can do to help our native water birds. 3CR, 28 minutes past 4 o'clock.
0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: On the line is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan recently returned from the Marshall Islands and an important conference. And it relates to what was happening in the 1950s, Nick.
4: After the Second World War, the United States, having used atomic weapons at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, decided to extend its nuclear monopoly. So they began testing in the Marshall Islands, and in 1946 conducted the first of a series of atmospheric nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll. Bikini is one of the northern atolls of the Marshall Islands, which is a a Micronesian nation spread pretty much due north of Melbourne in uh, the northern hemisphere. From the first test, Able, in 1946, the U.S. military conducted 67 atmospheric nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands at both Bikini and also Eniwetok atolls, developing firstly their atomic arsenal and later thermonuclear or hydrogen weapons. 1952, the first hydrogen bomb, in part of Operation Ivy, and the codename Mike. Ivy Mike was the first H bomb. That continued. The Russians, of course, began uh, their own nuclear weapons program, the first atomic test in um, 1949 by the USSR, as it was in those days, the first hydrogen bomb test in August 1953. And so you see uh, this arms race, Cold War arms race, ramping up. And so the United States began developing even bigger and more dangerous weapons, culminating in a blast on the 1st of March 1954 as part of Operation Castle, known as Bravo. And Bravo was a disaster. Indeed, it was one of the worst radiological disasters in human history. This was a massive, massive nuclear weapon, 15 megatons in size, in yield. If you think about the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, it was about the size of 15,000 kilotons. That's the equivalent of about 15,000 tons of TNT equivalent. So a megaton is a million tonnes of TNT. If Hiroshima was 15,000 tonnes, a megaton is a million tonnes of TNT equivalent. You can think about the explosive power of that weapon. So Bravo was 15 megatons. It was an enormous, enormous weapon. test was conducted with the military knowing that the wind was blowing from the west and blowing eastwards from Bikini Atoll. And east of Bikini are a number of inhabited atolls, including Rongalap, Uttarik, uh, Ailinglelai, and uh, many others. And so you had a situation where the US military let off a nuclear weapon. Within hours, they evacuated 28 military personnel who were there on the islands to the north of the marshals, weathermen. But they left for three days a number of hundreds of Marshallese islanders, particularly on the islands of uh, Rongalap and Uttarik, and those people suffered the effects, um, both immediate and long-lasting, of uh, the radioactive fallout that came from the Bravo test.
1: And 63 years later, you've just attended a conference there?
4: Yeah, the Marshall Islands has continued to commemorate March the 1st as a, a Nuclear Remembrance Day, commemorating both the adverse effects of that day and also the call for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. This year in Majuro, the main island of the Marshalls, the governor of the Marshall Islands hosted a three day conference, which was a a really uh, moving and important event um, to uh, both recall the events of that time and the impacts it had, particularly on the health and environment of the, the people who are still often displaced from their home atolls, but more importantly, to look forward and to look at ways in which the Marshall Islands. Can contribute to abolishing nuclear weapons. Having lived through not only the horror of Bravo, but of, of dozens and dozens of atmospheric nuclear tests, about 80% of all tests in the atmosphere conducted by the United States were conducted in the Marshall Islands. Some were also done in the deserts of Nevada. But the Marshalls bore the brunt of the U.S. nuclear weapons testing program, together with other tests on Christmas Island. And so they want to not only look back, but look forward and see how that lived experience of the Cold War nuclear era can inform people as they debate the future of nuclear weapons.
1: And there were some survivors there?
4: Yeah, it was interesting and indeed some really uh, both heart-rending but heart tales. A guy called Charlie Dominic told the tale. Uh, he was on the island of Likiep, which is a couple of hundred kilometres away from um, Bikini uh, as a young boy. He was actually in the outhouse and the massive Blast, the sound and rumbling of the blast carried as far, hundreds of miles, to uh, his home island. And he reportedly ran out to find the other family members who were coming out because of the, the, the noise. His grandson delighted in telling how old man Dominic didn't have his pants on, and this has this entered family legend. So people, whether they were on Rongalap and the close by atolls, or whether they were further afield, had tales to tell. Because over the years, it's been discovered that. The fallout affected not just the four northern atolls, Bikini, Eniwetok, Rongelap, utirik which is what the United States has long acknowledged, but indeed most of the atolls that make up the Marshall Islands, at least 18 atolls and islands uh, out of the 22 in the Marshall Islands, had significant fallout from the Bravo test something that the United States knew back in 1955 but didn't release that information until the mid-90s with uh, information that was released under the Clinton administration.
1: Was there any compensation for the people?
4: This is part of the long and sad saga. The Marshall Islands citizens and government lodged a series of court cases during the 1970s and 80s before the US courts seeking compensation for the health impacts seeking um, compensation for the environmental damage and, indeed, loss of land on any wheat dock. Three whole islands were vaporised completely during the nuclear testing, not just damaged or cracked, but also blown up, vaporised enormously. There was also, um, you know, the long-term impacts. And those court cases, there were literally billions of dollars worth the court cases pending before the courts. But as the Marshall Islands moved from U.S. administration towards independence in the late 1980s, it was agreed in what was called the Compact of Free Association, a compact, an agreement between the U.S. and the Marshalls, that they would give up all their court cases and received a trust fund, a trust fund of $150 million, and that the money from that would fund rulings by a nuclear claims tribunal. This is a legal body established under the compact to make judgments on both health and property damage. And so the Marshall's citizens and government gave up their uh, legal cases and hoped that the trust fund could be used to pay for compensation. The problem was that The court rulings continued year after year, both for people who'd got uh, serious health problems, but also for the damage. And the court ended up giving rulings worth about $2.3 billion. Now, you only have to do the maths that a $150 million trust fund isn't going to pay all the compensation that is required. The marshals, therefore, put in a petition to the US Congress in 2000, claiming that they had not been given the full information that was required that could justify the higher claims and uh, seeking additional funding from the US government. Now, that petition has floundered uh, through the US system and is essentially stalled in the US administration back from the days of uh, Bush right through the uh, Obama administration, the second Bush administration. And uh, even, well, obviously today, they're not expecting a lot from Donald Trump. And so uh, the courts, US recognised courts, have recognised that there should be payouts of over $2.3 billion, particularly to people from Bikini, Eniwitok, Rongelap, but also people around the country who have significant health problems and significant loss of damage uh, of property. But that money is not being paid simply because there's no money to pay for the court rulings.
1: And where do the people live now, the ones who are forced from their lands?
4: They've been scattered. There's been a series of relocations. Firstly, people from Bikini were relocated in 1946. Many were taken back to Bikini after the first round of testing, but it was clear that their islands were uh, contaminated by radioactive fallout and particularly hazardous, uh, long-lasting radioactive isotopes, particularly cesium-137, which is uh, an isotope that can enter the food chain those who may know a bit about radiation know that you can be... Some isotopes are dangerous because of gamma rays that can go straight through you. a bit like an X-ray. So if you face direct exposure to a nuclear detonation, that can be hazardous. But often more dangerous radiation comes from what are called alpha particles. And these are isotopes, often long-lasting, like plutonium, which half-life uh, is 24,400 years. Cesium, a half-life even of 30 years before half of it decays away. So that means that these isotopes can enter the food chain from the soil. Cesium can get into plants like coconut. And for people who rely on eating coconuts and using it in their daily life, that can be hazardous. So alpha particles can be ingested or inhaled and that can lodge in your tissues, in your guts or wherever. And the energy put out by these radioactive isotopes can change your cells, and a very shorthand way of describing it, but it's a major medical hazard and can lead to cancers, leukemias, other health problems. Uh, And these may not be apparent at first. They may take 10, 20, 30 years to come forward. And so that's where we're seeing people who um, weren't directly affected by gamma radiation at the time but are now facing problems because of these long-term uh, alpha particles that have been uh, come in, particularly through eating fish or in coconuts, eating other areas. And so people couldn't live on Bikini and were relocated to Kili, some uh, to another island uh, down in Majuro, the capital. The same happened for Rongolap. People from Rongolap uh, were relocated initially, um, ended up on Kodulan Atoll. Some went back to, to Rongolap but um, faced many serious health problems. And famously, in 1985, uh, the Greenpeace vessel Rainbow Warrior went up to Rongolap, relocated the population, believing that, in spite of some attempts for clean-up of topsoil and so on, that there was still too much hazardous uh, radiation, particularly cesium, cesium-137, cesium and that people were going to have serious health problems. So the Rongolap people relocated 30 years ago, most of them still living uh, scattered around the country in uh, the capital. And it was striking, many Bikinians live on Egypt, which is an island in the, the main atoll, Majuro Atoll. And on the day of uh, the Nuclear Remembrance Conference, uh, school children paraded, um, um, all wearing their school uniforms. The kids from Egypt Primary School have got a big mushroom cloud on their T-shirts. They wear bright orange T-shirts uh, adorned with a mushroom cloud. These kids from Bikini who've grown up never having lived on their home island can remember where they come from, remember why they're living in exile, why they're living away from their own land, their own homeland, and uh, doing that. And that was one of the features of the conference that every day, you know, two or three hundred people sat through uh, the conference, some of which was uh, personal survival testimony, some was academic scientists, researchers, anthropologists, talking about the latest knowledge that we have about what has happened from the nuclear testing. When hundreds of school kids sat through it, learning the lessons of history, sometimes that they'd heard it from their grandparents, sometimes from their parents, some from their own lived experience, but all of them recalling the legacy and um, following the, the the call from the government that this should never happen again.
1: What else was discussed? Because it was a three-day conference, and what were the resolutions at the end?
4: Well, a lot of it was um, to inform a new commission that's been established by the government of the Marshall Islands. For a long time, the Marshalls, like other Pacific Island countries, has been campaigning around climate issues. And Ambassador Tony De DeBrum, uh, who's the roving ambassador for climate change for the Marshall Islands government, was very active in the Higher Ambition Coalition during the climate negotiations. But the nuclear survivors have been pressing the Marshalls government not to forget the nuclear issue, which has been pretty low on the international totem pole for many years. There was a, a, a parliamentary motion a few months ago establishing a national nuclear commission and as the name suggests, it's a commission, three-person commission, which will be charged with a whole range of activities, including uh, maintaining uh, research programs on health and environment, maintaining compensation schemes, continuing to lobby the United States for an upgrade in the compensation that is so due to the Marshall Islands um, for having hosted uh, the. US nuclear weapons testing program, doing a whole range of cultural and educational activities. It's a major initiative that at national level, there should be a sort of one-stop shop for coordinated activity to keep the nuclear agenda moving forward. The Marshalls has also, though, been very active on the international stage, and part of the conference was also discussing the Marshall Islands' role in supporting international nuclear disarmament negotiations. In 2014, the Marshall Islands lodged a case, which has been unsuccessful, before the International Court of Justice, calling for um, action by the nuclear-armed states um, on their failure to uh, fulfil their NPT obligations, their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Under the NPT, Article 5, uh, nuclear weapons powers are supposed to, in good faith negotiate a whole comprehensive good faith negotiations towards nuclear disarmament, towards the abolition of nuclear weapons. Now those negotiations are not happening and they haven't happened for many years indeed we see the opposite where you've had new states like North Korea expanding their nuclear arsenal and old established states like uh, the United Kingdom United States modernising their nuclear arsenals even the Obama administration which talked nuclear disarmament spent hundreds of millions of dollars modernising the uh, US nuclear arsenal. Britain has been uh, pushing ahead with the modernisation of its Trident Strike Force, submarine-launched ballistic missiles on the Trident submarines. So we see, in fact, uh, an increase in the arms race, not a decrease. And earlier this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists famously moved the clock closer to midnight, going back to the 1960s. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has measured the danger of nuclear war, and this year they moved the hand 30 seconds closer to midnight, closer to nuclear war, showing that the international situation is such that uh, we're moving into dangerous times.
1: And at, at the same time, there are these meetings happening in the UN this year around nuclear weapons...
4: Because of the delay on the uh, part of the nuclear weapons powers, we're seeing a major shift occur towards negotiations for a treaty banning nuclear weapons, moving towards the abolition of nuclear weapons. The negotiations indeed begin next week, 27th of March. Over three years, there's been a series of conferences on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons, firstly in Oslo, then Nayarit in Mexico, and then thirdly in Austria. These three conferences began to look at the danger from nuclear weapons um, that uh, any use of nuclear weapons would be a humanitarian disaster disproportionate in terms of the response to an armed attack, dangerous to civilians, and obviously contributing to enormous environmental damage. Indeed, uh, we now know, because of research on climate change, that even a so-called small nuclear war with a limited number of warheads would lead to the spread of nuclear clouds across the Northern Hemisphere, basically cutting out food production for many, many months and causing a global catastrophe. And so there's been this push. It was agreed by the lead countries such as Austria, Mexico, Costa Rica, New Zealand and others that you shouldn't just keep holding conferences saying what we already know, that a nuclear war would be disastrous for all of humanity. And so in December last year, after an open-ended working group established the process, a resolution was passed by the UN General Assembly, 123 countries voting in favour, 19 against, that negotiations should begin on a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. We've had treaties to ban landmines, to ban uh, biological and chemical weapons. This is following the same sort of path. Now, obviously, major nuclear powers like the United States, the United Kingdom, France are not going to participate in these processes. They're not going to accept that their nuclear arsenals should be whittled away. But the non-nuclear countries, led by many middle powers, have said enough is enough. We can't wait for the nuclear weapon states to fulfil their obligations under the new NPT to negotiate in good faith for disarmament. We've been waiting for decades. We should act And it's the same spirit that saw the creation of nuclear weapons-free zones, for example, in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, in the whole of Africa, in Mongolia, in Austria, in other countries, New Zealand's nuclear-free status and so on. Small countries saying, we should act and create a new norm. And so the negotiations that will begin next week are a major breakthrough. It's mid-level countries saying enough is enough. And in our region, it's pretty much everyone.
1: Except us.
4: It's Indonesia, it's Thailand, it's Malaysia, it's New Zealand, it's every Pacific country, bar one, bar FSM. All of our neighbours are saying that they should participate in good faith in this process. And as you say, the one standout, apart from Japan, in our region, is Australia. And both Australia and the Japanese base their whole security policy on extended nuclear deterrence, on, to use the jargon, sheltering under the American nuclear umbrella... Without nuclear weapons ourselves, we rely on uh, the uh, United States for our defence posture. There should be and there will be a debate as to whether that should continue, whether it is moral, let alone legal, to continue to base our national security, our personal security, on the notion of incinerating other human beings and irradiating the planet. And many people increasingly realise that nuclear weapons can never be used, and so their deterrent effect is, is, is useless. And you see that with North Korea. The North Koreans aren't threatened by the fact that the US has a modernising nuclear arsenal. They're just ar- modernising their arsenal. And we're moving into situations where, by accident, By inadvertence, let alone by deliberate intent, there could be a nuclear launch, in which case it's on for young and old. And the best way forward to get rid of that is to demobilise the nuclear arsenals and ultimately abolish them. So we're going to be moving into negotiations, the first round in March, the second round in June, July, to develop a treaty, an international binding treaty, with verification uh, to ensure there should be no cheating, with provisions um, to address questions of compensation and clean up for existing nuclear survivors uh, with a whole range of provisions that ultimately will lead towards the abolition of nuclear weapons.
1: Well it's worked for other weapons hasn't it?
4: It has and these are different types of weapons and indeed the whole international security structure is based on the nuclear state. You know, you get to be a permanent member of the UN Security Council because you're a nuclear armed power like France or China or Russia and so on. I mean, it's interesting that the Chinese have accepted that they may participate in the talks or they may be more open to the talks going ahead, whereas the United States, uh, Britain, France and others have said, no, nothing to do with this. Uh, this is uh, childish, foolish. It's not going to go ahead. Well, probably is it is going to go ahead, most countries in the Asia-Pacific are going to negotiate in good faith a treaty. And Australia's refusal not only to support the process, but even to participate in the negotiations, is a sign of how we've locked ourselves into the U.S. nuclear strike system. And we provide a whole range of support, most obviously through the joint facilities, the military bases like Pine Gap, that are a crucial part of US warfighting doctrine. At least the Australian government position is consistent. We're very closely integrated into US warfighting doctrines. Our defence is based on the notion that we should incinerate other human beings with a first strike. This is a first strike capacity, and bases like Pine Gap play a role in that. So at least there's no hypocrisy with the Australian government position. They're saying we're supporting Donald Trump. We're supporting the United States' current push, adding $52 billion this year in one year alone to the U.S. defence budget, increasing the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal Is the current policy of the Trump administration to give Malcolm Turnbull and Julie Bishop their due. At least they've recognised the logic of the position. And they said, quite rightly, it would be hypocritical to come along and say, we want to campaign for nuclear disarmament. They don't. They support extended nuclear deterrence they support australia's defense posture being based on the nuclear incineration of other people and um i think you'll find though within australia there's a groundswell of public opinion uh, who believe that we should be party to the process that's going to develop a nuclear weapons treaty
1: will there be a decision this year
4: it's uncertain at this stage the negotiations will only begin next week it's likely This discussion has been going on for a long time, and indeed there's been a number of model nuclear treaties uh, proposed over recent decades. The Canberra Commission, set up by the Keating Government in Australia, uh, did a lot of work on what would a treaty look like. Uh, issues like verification. How would you ensure that governments were cheating? We've seen the whole question back uh, in the in lead up to the weapons of mass destruction, the inspections that were conducted showing that Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction in the lead up to the war in Iraq. So these sorts of questions have been debated at academic level for a long time, and there are a number of model treaties around with the range of provisions that are there. What we're going to see, though, is a formal government to government negotiation process sponsored by the United Nations, based on a UN General Assembly resolution, to create a treaty. It's likely that if a treaty can be finalized in the June-July round of negotiations, that it would be then put to the UN for signatory later in the year, possibly even as early as September. And that's a major change. At that point, obviously, a number of countries won't sign it. The United States, I doubt, would sign such a treaty, Great Britain, France, are uh, very unlikely to. be very interesting to see what happens next. But I think it places Australia in a difficult situation. We have a choice of going with our near neighbours, which are signatories to the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, the Rarotonga Treaty. We are a signatory to that treaty. To the Bangkok Treaty for a nuclear weapons-free zone in Southeast Asia, there's pushes for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Korean Peninsula in Northeast Asia... So do we use these as building blocks towards a real nuclear weapons-free future or do we continue to base our defence posture on the American nuclear umbrella and the notion that we support first strike attacks against our official enemies? And I think we're going to be moving into a very interesting debate where countries have the option of signing on to this treaty. Most of our near neighbours will sign it very quickly once it is negotiated. Um, Certainly pretty much all the Pacific will sign it with countries like the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, uh, uh, French Polynesia, other countries that have lived through the nuclear era and are living with the consequences. They're going to be at the forefront, particularly if there's a provision. One of the things the Pacific governments are calling for is that there should be a provision in the treaty obliging nuclear weapon states to clean up the mess of their nuclear weapons testing program. And so there will be obligations on the Soviets in Kazakhstan, the Americans in the Marshall Islands and Christmas Island, France in French Polynesia, to clean up the radioactive health and environmental legacies from their nuclear weapons testing program. There's a lot to be done, and this is not going to happen overnight, but it's a major breakthrough that there are government-to-government negotiations under UN auspices to ban nuclear weapons.
1: And that's researcher and journalist... Nick McClellan, fresh back from the Marshall Islands. And if people are wondering why Brian McKinlay, our historian for Tuesday Home Time, has been absent for a couple of weeks, Brian is not well at the moment, but hopefully very soon he'll be back on the program with his history segment. It's five minutes to five o'clock.
0: Let's make it the largest walk yet. Demanding permanent protection in Australia for asylum seekers found to be refugees. Closure of detention centres and freedom for all refugees. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Hear a human rights lawyer, a teacher, a refugee and a panel of interfaith speakers. Sunday the 9th of April at the State Library in Swanson Street at 2pm with our walk through the city finishing back at the State Library by 330 Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is organised by the Refugee Action Network, a 3CR supporter.
1: Venezuela has lost a man dedicated to improving the lives of the poor and marginalised in his country through his research, teaching and support of building socialism. He was Dr Marcelo Rosas, who passed away on the 22nd of February, aged 67. Coral Winter from Socialist Alliance met him many times whilst in Venezuela for the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network Brigades. Coral, Marcelo was a man with a social conscience. What do you know about his background, his family life?
0: I don't know even know whether he had doctors in his family or not. I think he was well off, but he came from the Isle of Margarita and then went to university yeah, in the 60s and 70s at UCB and was always a fighter for, on behalf of disenfranchised and marginalised
1: people in Venezuela, yeah. What was happening in Venezuela in the 70s that arced him up while he was at uni?
0: People don't realise, but they had a dictatorship in 1954 up until 1958 in Venezuela. They, one of the countries in Latin America that had earlier military dictatorships. They were overthrown in 1958, 1959, and then they led on to social democratic elections. But the U.S. government, State Department, were terrified they might go the same way as Cuba. So they wanted to totally avoid that. And so when these democratic, so-called democratic, social democratic governments came into power in 1959, they started a whole campaign to eliminate left-wing activists, and particularly their students at University Central of Venezuela. They killed and shot a lot of high school students and university students in that early period of the 60s. They shot killed about 80 students at a high school. This period is sort of not very well known in history, but um, the, the United States were determined they weren't going to go the way of Cuba. so they carried out this massive campaign also against the Venezuelan Communist Party. And that's when Marcelo first became active in that in that period. Well, the radical left sort of carried out kidnappings of business, American business leaders in the country who were operating factories there, you know, paying people their little money. And he told me in secret one time, I didn't know this story. I think many people knew this story, that he drove a... Um, a getaway car, but it was an ambulance, and, and these and the, the activists had persuaded him to do that. But um, I think he moved away a bit away from sort of those radical politics after that.
1: <laughs> well, where did you train as a doctor? Oh, he would have trained at
0: University uh, UCV University Central de Venezuela. Yeah, they've got a, they had a huge course for uh, medical students there that they would train. They had about three or four schools actually at the university. But at that time in the in the 60s anybody could go to university there. So they had a very radical population of students. In later years they changed all that and they would interview prospective students and if you didn't have or indicate that your family could support you during those years of study at university then you weren't you didn't get in. They changed the student body from a very active politicized student layer to a very conservative population that only came from the upper middle class. Because when I was there, I lived there in Venezuela in 1975, 1977, and when I was there, was, all the students were supporting the um, NLF in Vietnam. They stopped the bus that used to pass around outside the university, got all the people out, and then burnt the bus as a protest. And on, on top of that, when um, Kissinger came to Venezuela in about in 77. They went up to the pharmacy building which was facing the street and they threw rocks and stones at Kissinger's car. Well, that all changed in the two thousand and, and and all 1990s and after that, that all changed totally.
1: Well, when he graduated as a doctor, what was the health system that he was going to go into?
0: Well, it was all privatised. It was all private. You, you couldn't get access to... A doctor, unless you paid money, and then the only way you could get treatment medical treatment was to go to the hospitals the public hospital, a couple of hospitals, but they were really understaffed and thousands of people trying to get attention, and it was impossible. He did his degree at uh, university, UCV, and then went to and studied for a PhD at um, Cornell University in New York. That would have been four or five years. And they came back to Venezuela and then went into the academic staff to educate and train new medical students
1: in sort of modern methods of medicine. Was he still politicised at that time? Oh,
0: yes, yes, yes. Otherwise, they would never have come back to Venezuela. If you wanted a career in research, medical research, you would stay in the United States. And many, many, many students that I know of my friends who have trained and very bright students but they've, and they've taken them into their laboratories and trained them at UCV, they would end up going to the United States and just staying and they never came back. So, you know, it's a big disappointment for many of the academics and educators who stayed in Venezuela. But they were absolutely committed to changing the social situation, the situation of poverty and, and uh, marginalisation uh, you know, in, in Venezuela.
1: And how did he go about it? What was his role?
0: Well, mainly as, uh, as an educator and then as also doing research. Um, he did research throughout all that time in the 70s, 80s and 90s uh, under very, very difficult circumstances. Anyone who's tried to do research, world-class research in, in third world countries faced terrible problems of bureaucracy and so, so many difficulties. But he, he, he kept doing that and training as many students as he possibly could also with a very social conscience that whole time and doing what he can politically. He didn't join a party, I don't think, in in Venezuela, but as soon as Chavez came to power, he then got really, really active in their local community and also at university.
1: And his wife, Ramona, she worked with him?
0: Yeah, yeah, Ramona worked in the Institute of um, Experimental Medicine. See, that's where I worked when I was there for those two years. In the 70s and that's how i got to know one of his colleagues dr isla lippo de Bessenberg. and i didn't know marcelo at that stage because he that was when he was studying in uh, new york but um that's when i got i worked at that institute for two years and it was a wonderful experience and i met you know some fantastic colleagues They were still there. I mean, Italy is still there, working away every day, um, doing as much as she can in research.
1: What is the research that he was involved with? He worked on
0: lung. He had been working on ox lung just to work out what's the pathway of signalling for the airways to open up or to close down using a lot of different inhibitors. And so it was very, very important work because he was... Working on a cyclic AMP, or probably people don't know this bit of jargon, but a cyclic AMP and how it reacts to things in the airway. And so it was very instrumental in significant research because it began to show there were different pathways in which would be affected by asthma and why certain chemicals in the air would begin to affect the membranes and how they react to these chemicals when people are breathing. So it was a very, very important work and he got published in international journals.
1: Did he travel overseas at all?
0: Well, not very much, no. It was difficult. Sort of getting um, dollars in Venezuela is quite difficult. Well, I'm not sure he spent much time overseas. No.
1: Talk about when Chavez came into power and, and how that changed for him.
0: He described to me... <laughs> Under the previous government, he had to drive from where he lived, which was about probably um, 20 kilometres away, to the university every day. And he said, people don't realise it, you know, like none of the, the roads didn't work, none, none of the roads were repaired, they full of potholes. So this four-lane highway was reduced at one point down to one lane because the rest of the road was so destroyed and there was no the government wouldn't pay to fix up all the potholes. So, it would take you two or three hours to get to work when it should have only have been about a half hour trip and you know and then, as soon as Chavez came in and began this whole program of of repairing all the schools, the high schools, the roads, everything changed you know people you know were you're just affected in your just your daily life and and everything becomes so much easier and so much better and and you know and you have security and you know. Um, that you're going to be back to the hilt with whatever progressive change you, you want to make. Yeah, and, and I remember also during the uh, elections for Chavez, Ramona, his wife, worked in the local polling booth, which they were surrounded by conservatives and you know the the opposition. She had a, an enormous amount of courage and put up a fight there for to overlook oversee the elections in that booth to make sure they were fair and that the uh, opposition didn't cheat the voting procedures.
1: Did he get a hard time in the university for his support for the revolution?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. The university was just horrendous. It's just so full of crops. Automatically from the government, they were given this huge sum of money to run the university. A lot of the money was just hived off into personal accounts. The dean of the university, or the the rector of the university, a woman had built this massive house out of the money she got that was supposed to go to... Um, cafeteria for students, things like that, you know. And so, and and the elections—they allowed ex uh, academics, academics had retired to vote in the elections. So it was really skewed. Um, and so it was very difficult to do anything at the university. And also, there's massive bureaucracy. That that's how these sort of world governments survive. They pay a certain layer of public of servants and administrators. These huge sums of money to do nothing, you know, where you're just sitting around. And so, yeah, that was full of So That was very, very difficult. I think he got about 20% of the vote when he ran for rector in 2004, but very difficult to change anything there.
1: Did he stay in the university?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was still working on the day he died. He, I rang his wife because it was such a such a shock because he was only 67 years old and he had Gone to work that day, he'd come home, had dinner, told his wife he wasn't feeling very well, went to his computer to fix up a lecture he had for the next day on physiology to medical students and had a massive heart attack, and that was it. But, I mean, I've, I've written about it in the paper here because he helped us enormously when the Australian-Venezuela Solidarity Network did um, the brigades to Venezuela from 2006 to 2012, every year I could always call on him for help and for arrangements and to organise stuff and he would give a lecture for about two hours to the group of Australians, in English of course because he was fluent in English, about the history of Venezuela because nobody here is that very familiar with it and so it was a very informative two hours and afterwards he would arrange lunch for us all at the cafeteria in the university which was a really nice cafeteria there he was so helpful to me and to the brigades in organising you know, our, our visit there to Venezuela and I could always count on him to um, help us out in any sort of, if there was any problem arose.
1: You wrote that his wife believed that the stress and concern and enormous pressure on the people of Venezuela since Chavez's death contributed to his heart attack.
0: Yeah, I think that was true, you know. Um, it, it's hard to imagine the economic problems there, even with people who, you know, are on a reasonable wage and from the middle class because of the massive inflation rate caused by outside influences, and especially the United States, and because of the shortages of basic foods that, uh, that, occur, that was occurring because the capitalist class, the oligarchs, uh, refused to put their items in the um, supermarket shelves. So even just getting basic food and and just carrying around your daily life was such a strain. And to, on top of that, to imagine doing research where you've got to import every single chemical and um, material from overseas—that's uh, an enormous amount of stuff. And to keep—he had a group of about six to ten students, you know, working with him. So to keep all that going and then um, to do all the administrative work that that entails, you know, that they want reports every couple of months, it, was, it would just be phenomenal.
1: What do you believe his main legacy will be?
0: He'd be remembered as a a great Chavista supporter who tried to do everything in the spirit of Chavismo for his students and for general population. Um, yes, he'll be remembered as a... As a um, unsung hero of the Bolivarian Revolution, I think there's hundreds of thousands of people like him, who are totally committed to Chavez's program of commitment to an end of poverty, you know, and an an end of marginalisation and, and an inclusion of everybody in the running of the country and of um, and uh, fulfilling their potential as, as in you know as individuals in whatever field they wanted to do.
1: And Ramona will carry on his work.
0: Well, I'm not sure what she's going to do. They're all in shock. Everybody's in such shock because he was only, you know, 67, and no one expected this to happen at all. You know, um, his mentor and colleague, Dr. Isla Lippo, is I think she must be in her late 70s, so she's in shock, and everybody's so upset because he was such a tower of strength and someone you could always rely on. Yes, yeah, so I rang. Ramona uh, one night and she was crying. It was, just, it was only a week after his death and she still can't believe it. No one can believe it. It, it. It's just a terrible shock and a terrible loss to the revolution. You know, someone who's committed to those issues and and, and belongs to the academic and intellectual class. Uh, that's a great loss.
1: And that's Coral Winter speaking about her friend, Dr. Marcello Roger who died too soon, just last month, in Venezuela.
0: Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t-shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t-shirts for sale. Designed by
5: local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t-shirts are available from our
0: studios at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. For just
5: $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of Radical Radio.
1: Today and next week you'll be hearing from journalist Colin McNaughton whose documentary La Frontera won him a Walkley Award and the UN Association of Australian Peace Prize for Radio. The documentary examined the ultra-violent narco wars along the US-Mexico border. Colin returned to Mexico and also to Cuba late last year and I asked him first about the changes he noticed when he went back to Mexico this time?
6: Well, I think the most obvious one is, especially when you're in Mexico City, there's not very many tourists, and that's one part, whereas even in 2010 there was still a lot. I think essentially what it is, in 2010, the government at that time, Calderon, still ran Mexico City, and then the rest of Mexico was pretty much a narco-state or a series of narco-states, where now the whole place is a series of narco-states. Basically, the government is lost, and they don't really have any power. And you can see this, in, for example, in the police. In 2010, the, there were sections of the police that were actually trying to maintain some sort of line, and they were very ferocious because the left was also sort of emerging at the time, and they were there to smash them as well as parts of them anyway, at least take on the narcos, those that weren't part of one of the organisations. But now when you go there, the police are very docile. They're not there to do anything. They're just there to sort of give a semblance of public order. And so it's a very sort of interesting, different shift. And they don't have that same ferocity they used to have in the streets. So I think that what, from what I, under, I understand, talking to some Mexicans there as well, is that the military is now breaking from the government because they're the only power that could actually take on any of the narcos or narco states, Sinaloa cartels, Zetas, whatever. But they've actually said, we're not going to support the government anymore, the pre. And you've got to remember, too, in Mexico, it's not like the Mexican government, the Mexican army purely has its own, the purse strings are purely in the government's hands. They have their own business interests. So they can actually survive outside of the government. So you've got this really crazy sort of space now where basically it's all these narco states. There's an elected government, the PRI, which has come back, and pretty much the the military is trying to break itself from them As to what they're going to do, I'm not exactly sure. What they exist for, I'm not exactly sure. If it's not to sort of defend something about the sovereignty of Mexico. And then over the top of that, of course, you now have Trump talking about wanting to invade Mexico. So as to all that, that's a big, big mess.
1: Just explain how it's got to that stage with the anarcho-states.
6: Pretty much the consensus is, and this is you know, people like Anita Hernandez and Ed Vuliami and a whole lot of journalists that do some good work on this issue, is that what Calderon was doing wasn't a war on drugs, that was largely theatre. What he was doing was supporting the Sinaloa cartel, which is, everyone knows as El Chapo Guzman, at least he's one of the symbolic heads of that. He, they were supporting the Sinaloa cartel, you can look at arrest rates, etc., to see that they really were focusing on the other cartels. And what the idea was, because the, 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 the real way the pre were able to maintain some sort of semblance of, I don't know, peace, let's call it, or some sort of detente, some sort of mutually assured stability, was to actually allow one of the cartels to sort of control. And so they made the alliance with them. So I think that's what Calderon was doing. And basically that's come unstuck. And so basically the narcos said, we don't even need you to the government. You don't even have enough power to even worry about. It, so we just do what we want. And that's pretty much the situation you're in now. So why has it been allowed to happen? Why drugs? I think you really need to ask the people who in Citibank and the big narco-bourgeoisie, because that's where the real billions of dollars are. I mean, most of us, because we've been sort of... Diddled by Hollywood, and we have this idea of these sort of, you know, working class, poor, marginal guys being young gangbangers or narcos or gangsters, whatever. But I think that's only a very small part of the picture. The real picture, I think, is the guys who are actually on the boards of Citibank, um, the big banking institutions that are funneling and, and uh, moving billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars through their banks, coming from these organisations. So this is the real thing. I remember back in 2008, when there was a big economic crisis, one of the big things that came out was the head of the UN drug and crime organisation at the time said that basically without sort of the money coming from the narco organisations, this is globally, capitalism would have completely collapsed. So you have this situation in the last, say, 10 years or so, where the legal forms of capital are moving towards illegal forms, and the illegal forms are actually moving towards the legal. And you can see that in the City of London. You can see that in a whole lot of different processes around offshore banking, not paying taxes by corporations, etc., where the narcos and the sort of criminal elements and the so-called legitimate elements of capital are actually becoming more and more closely linked and aligned because of the crises multi-layered crises in capital in terms of fluidity, in terms of debt, and et cetera, et cetera. That's a huge topic of which I only know some small portion and toxicity of death especially. And so I think you have a deeper sort of structural elements that underpin that drug crisis, not only in Mexico, because that's you know, only one element. And of course, there's Colombia. There's the whole sort of coca triangle. But then also in terms of the United States and Europe, in terms of the, the movements of the big money,
1: well, underneath all this is the, the local people, the society. What did you find in that sense with how people are getting on with life?
6: Well, I think, and, and what was stark was because we were in Cuba a few you know, a little while afterwards and then we, we went to Mexico, then Cuba, then came back. And what you saw in Mexico is definitely levels of immiseration, especially of the indigenous in Cuba, for example, you don't really see, while there's some poverty for sure, but it's not a poverty as in a homelessness and, a, and starvation, et cetera, where in Mexico you do see both of those. And you see them just sort of in the street. People are sort of quite destitute, you know, and we're not talking one or two, we're talking many thousands. And this is like in just Mexico City, but of course, if you go into the hinterlands, it's going to be a lot more pronounced and a lot sharper. So you, st- you have that massive polarization of wealth and that 's very obvious in Mexico, just anywhere in Mexico City, where you go so that 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 contradiction is just underpinning its society and and that 's obviously what the narcos can work on because they can employ some of the really poor guys who just have basically nothing else and of course the daughters, the factories the cheap zones which trump wants to get rid of of course because of the nafta free trade agreement and how it took away american jobs but the whole process of that was by was created by dispossessing corn growing farmers so campesinos who grew corn and then sold it at a market so flooding that market with cheap american corn so they were actually decimated and creating a massive labor pool that would work for very cheap wages up on the us mexico border and that was the sort of underpinning if you will in their words anyway genius underpinned the sort of rebuilding of Mexico.
1: Where does the Catholic Church fit into all this?
6: Well, the Catholic Church is a very um, hydra-headed beast. I think symbolically it's very interesting, because part of what we were there doing was actually checking out the mythos. We went to the Virgin de Guadalupe celebrations because, I don't know if people know, but the Virgin de Guadalupe is like a syncretic, let's say, god or goddess in the Mexican scene. So it's, she's not just the virgin, because when, I think his name was Juan, when Juan... And it was in Nuatl, the local indigenous language, was actually given the virgins, uh, if you will, the visions of the virgin that actually underpinned the virgin of Guadalupe, that was also a site of a Aztec goddess Coatluke. It was her site that was actually decimated, and it was in that place where the virgin was spotted. So what you have is this sort of syncretic so basically while she looks like it's the Virgin of Guadalupe, like Mary, but really it's an Aztec goddess who's sort of hidden within the symbology. But in terms of Mexico, she's a really important figure. Because in the Mexican Revolution, for example, both sides who were fighting fought under the flag of the Virgin. And when you look now at, say, Narcos and the narco symbology, you have the Santa Muerte, which again is a coming out of the Aztec and the various different civilizations. And you have that symbology for the lower street guys, but the bigger narco guys, the more powerful ones, they actually look into the Virgin as well and to part of their symbology of how they actually create a sort of worldview or a narco sort of culture, a narco cultura, that actually then symbolically can take on the church because of the church's power. So when you're talking about the church in Mexico, it's quite complex because there is those very strong indigenous elements and they're still there and lots of people recognize them and it's layered with this catholic symbology and then of course there's the corruption and the sort of the collusion of the church as well so it's not a simple thing just to say like in say for australia for example it's not as uh complex in that way as it is in mexico because you have four or five centuries of this syncretism that's gone on and people look to the version but also in some ways they're also looking to their own ancestors going back a few thousand centuries
1: and women in Mexico these days, I know when you were there last time, the big stories were the the hundreds and hundreds of women who are being murdered in the border areas what 's happened now
6: from what I know that's still going on well again i 'm not really an expert on the exactly why, but I think it's it 's very much part of just a breakdown of society because you've got to remember too the the narco guys, especially in that border area. When refugees are coming through and trying to move their way into the border, they'll often take them, you know, make what they call chickens, and they're the coyotes, and they'll they'll take those guys, and some of them will be women, of course, and they'll just, you know, massacre the whole lot of them or rape them and massacre them, etc., or make them pay exorbitant sort of crossing fees, etc. So that whole region is just sort of like a no go zone in terms of, and, and pretty much they can do what they like. And there's no sort of recompense, there's no, you know, there's no media, there's no police, there's no military really that can take them on, because they actually, it's their state and they're running it, and they're running it in this way. So the, some of those regions, even though the violence, say, in Juarez is actually sort of calmed down at some level, but those killings of the women, the femicides, et cetera, from what I understand, are continuing unabated. And probably what's happened now is it's actually moved from somewhere like a center of that is not so much anymore Juarez, but even places like Veracruz and all across the country. And that's one of the chilling things that Charles Bowden said, which actually one of the things that got me inspired, and I don't know if that's exactly the right word, to do work in Mexico was, he calls Juarez the laboratory of the future. And if you look at what Trump's doing and you look at what's happening in Mexico, Charles Bowden was chillingly observant because I think what's happening is it's not so much that Sura Juarez is changing, is that everywhere is changing into parts of Sura, like Sura Juarez, and that's actually quite terrifying. And we're going to see more of that, especially if Trump sort of tries to march in the troops and take out what he calls the bad dudes, i.e., the narcos. We're going to see this sort of stuff exploding all over. So those neoliberal social relations that were created in Sura Juarez as a social experiment, and femicide was part of that relationship, uh, I think you're seeing sort of becoming a more. I don't know if state is the right word in the Mexican context, but it's becoming more broad, and the Suda Juarez experiment is happening all over the place, even though in the actual place itself, because I think so many people have been killed, et cetera, or moved on or whatever, and the trade has moved on as well. Some of the big factories have moved on. I think it's sort of calming down there.
1: I know at the time you were there, journalists were one of the targets of the, of the killings. Is that still happening?
6: It's still number three in the world for killings. I think Syria... Afghanistan, and then Mexico is number three for killings of journalists. I think 11 were killed last year, and it's pretty much 11 to 15, 20, whatever, every year. So especially if you touch anything about corruption, the relationship between the state and the narcos, it's pretty much a death sentence. So even when I was there, and I, because I was only impressionistic, because I was just sort of there on holiday checking out things, but the media that I saw has actually got much less fangs than it used to have and the, uh, the coverage of the narcos was pretty much non-existent. So I'm not sure if the narcos have said pretty much you can't, like this is like La Jornada and the Proceso. I'm not sure if they were just told, you know, you cover it, you're going to die. But it certainly happened in other parts of Mexico. So because I was only there a short time, but the time I was there, you know, 10 days, two weeks, I didn't see any uh, coverage. And I was thinking, well, that could be why.
1: What about social media?
6: Because you've got to remember, too, that the, one of the main ways the narcos work is through social media, and they really follow and trace it, and they've been quite good at it. And there's quite well-known sort of beheadings and executions and the leaving of keyboards and social media stuff. So people are pretty wary, any, any mechanism they want to use, because, of course, these guys, they're very wealthy, and they can get the latest in sort of military technology from Israel or wherever. So they can actually trace the social media, and then they can target you. I think people are pretty wary even, you know, social media isn't necessarily out there because they have the latest gear and they can actually follow up who's done what and who said what. So their people are very intimidated.
1: And trade union activists, so they are targeted as well?
6: Well, they've been targeted... Forever. Yeah, and add the Indigenous, especially in the South, the sort of insurgent Indigenous populations, are, you know, not only the Zapatistas, but a whole lot of different ones trying to find some sort of dignity, some sort of land... Uh, Did you get down to
1: the south?
6: Uh, we only went to Oaxaca because again, you would have saw even just a few days after we left, there was a they went into a nightclub with lots of tourists and just sort of executed a whole lot of dudes. But not that we were going to nightclubs with lots of the Western tourists, we were hanging out in the Mexican parts. But the point being, it's still a pretty dicey area. It doesn't matter. There's, things can just happen anytime, anywhere, and there's no rules and there's pretty much no, you know, let's say rule of law. That doesn't pretty much exist. So yeah, we weren't really going to venture out of sort of, let's say, safer places where there was some sort of places to move or whatever. So we didn't really go into the hinterlands because it was just too too dangerous at the time.
1: But there's been a big fight back by teachers in Oaxaca, and I believe that's still
6: happening. Yes. Well, Oaxaca is one of those places, it's, they had their own, in 2006, they had their own, let's call it Paris Commune experience, and then they had the uh, bloodletting that followed. So when we went to Oaxaca, you still have some sort of. Teachers are the backbone of that, of course, and it's really a a peasant-indigenous issue, and it's got very long, deep roots in the whole Mexican state question. That's the place where we saw there was definitely something happening in terms of uh, some sort of social struggle, because in most of Mexico, the left is just completely, if not obliterated, and just fragmented into just a million shards, and it really doesn't have much... Much power, let's say. Because when we were there in 2010, lots of people were getting ready for some sort of fight or some sort of insurgency, but not now. That actually has been completely crushed and lots of people that I knew are actually doing something else. They've just completely left and they're having nothing to do with anything anymore. So there's a real sense of defeat and just sort of foreboding. And I think the, the narco issue, the whole pre-getting back in, people are just, oh, my God. <laughs> and then, and then of course, add on top of that, Mr. Trump making all these bellicose remarks about walls and you're going to pay for it, which the place is, you know, it's 110 million people. And probably somewhere between 30 and 40 million of those people are living under $2 a day and quite a few of those are probably in the immiseration category of under a dollar a day, they're not going to find it easy to pay $24 billion or $28 billion to Israeli companies, whatever it is, to actually make this wall, when most, many of them can't do, you know, finding it hard to keep soul together.
1: Now, you've mentioned Israel twice. Explain.
6: When you look at what was happening in uh, the FARC, um, recently in the FARC being sort of going to its peace, Parts. part of the sort of technology that was used was obviously the American satellites, but also the, the Israeli technology they created in terms of those little uh, cameras, are, the little dro- micro-drones they're able to use. And so they were able to take out six of the layers of the leadership and sort of destroy the and, the... and that's why the FARC are rushing to the peace table, because otherwise they're going to be obliterated like the Tamil Tigers. And this isn't just, obviously, in Colombia. So that Israeli technology is really at the cutting edge, and I use the word cutting... Uh, advisedly, the cutting edge of sort of breaking down. So the narcos buy that as well and use that. And that's what I mean again about using social media because you can use the social media and the Palestinian guys do, but they can also now have the technology to trace where that comes from and actually target that technology. So it's not an actual pure safe, you know, a way to sort of outmaneuver whatever, military, whatever, it's not. so And you've got to be really careful. And the forefront of a lot of that stuff is, of course, the US, but often the Israelis are in there too, which is, of course, one of the most profound ironies on the planet because, you know, two generations ago, their grandparents were the ones being basically the brunt, boring the brunt of the latest German technology in terms of what they were doing. So they've sort of become, and this, of course, is an incendiary question, They, in some ways they've become what they set out fighting against.
1: Did you get down to Chiapas?
6: No. No, no, no. Because? Well, just time Mm -hmm. and the focus really was also on seeing Cuba because we're in that process. Fidel had just died and Trump was about to be inaugurated so we're in that little gap between I don't know what and where we're going.
1: Well, just before you do go to Cuba, what did you see about Mexican art? And is that your tattoo? Is that a tattoo from
6: No, that's actually an Irish one but of course the Raven has a... um, the raven has is a powerful symbol quite across the planet in, you know, Central Asia, the Americas, and as well as Australia, Wurundjeri land, it's Wa, uh, and also in Ireland, it's Morrigan, the goddess Morrigan. In terms of art, well, I still claim, you know, very few people do it, but it's sad, but Mexico is one of the centres of world culture. It's the second most museums on the planet after London, but it's not often seen because of people's Eurocentric whatever, they go, oh, London, Paris, Amsterdam, but it's like, well, actually, it's actually Mexico. In Mexico City, it's murals, it's public art, it's statues, it's photography, it's love of that, it's colour. But you go anywhere in sort of Mexico, or well, not anywhere in Mexico City, but in many parts of Mexico City, there's a lot of public art, there's a lot of statues, there's a lot of um, museums, and so it's really quite stunning.
1: And we'll hear more about stunning Mexico on the program next week, and also about Column McNaughton's views on what's happening in Cuba.
2: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
2: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
1: Who does the killing?
2: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call
1: 9419 8377. A 572-page newly declassified report written by a senior scholar at the Directorate of Army Research and Analysis and obtained under freedom of information laws outlines many aspects of the invasion and post-invasion of Iraq that many already know, but there is an important difference why Australia went to war and Australia's role. I spoke with Dr Peter Wig, the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and I asked Peter first what he knew about the author of this report and the organisation he wrote for.
5: Well, this report was written by an Albert Palazzo who worked for the Defence Directorate of Army Research and Analysis, which was an official body the Defence Department has for analysing things like this. This is a report about the Iraq War. And it was originally intended as an unclassified book that would be used by junior officers in their training to learn about the Army's role during the Iraq War. Initially, a, a simple uh, exercise in the Army informing itself. But then it became so controversial that it was uh, classified and was to be read only by senior officers. And then so controversial it was shelved. So this article was written between 2009 and 2011, a report on the Iraq War, by Albert Palazzo of the Defense Directorate of Army Research and Analysis. He interviewed 75 of the officers who served, uh, Australian officers who served in Iraq and also had correspondence with some other sources and had full access to all the classified documents involved. It took him three years to write. It's a 572-page document, eventually classified secret, but it's recently been declassified and uh, copies were obtained by the aged newspaper and possibly others under the Freedom of Information Act.
1: Nevertheless, a lot of it was redacted.
5: Yes, oh yes, of course, with a large amount of it redacted. I'll give you some examples of some of the um, controversial things which it says or describes, which are probably why it was classified and eventually shelved. These are some examples of things reported by officers who served in Iraq at that time. One is in April 2003 which was shortly after the invasion of Iraq. Australia's military commander there was phoned from Australia to say that an RAAF Hercules would soon fly into Baghdad with medical supplies for the looted hospitals there. Caller was his boss, who was General Peter Cosgrove, who was working closely with the Howard government in running our involvement in Iraq. Uh, This Middle East commander protested and said, look, the airport isn't safe and there's no way we can distribute these medical supplies to the 40 hospitals across Baghdad, which was war-ravaged at the time. But he was told, well, I'm sorry, this is uh, being announced to the press, and the Hercules is coming, uh, so please make it happen. So the delivery went about, and it was a great media success for Howard because this was an unpopular war, but sending medical supplies to these hospitals was obviously considered a a good thing. So it arrived, and as the commander there had said, it was impossible to secure it or uh, distribute any of the uh, materials, and so they simply rotted at the airport. So it was simply a a waste of materials themselves and of the use of the Hercules and the men on board and all the rest of it. Another one was uh, just before the onset of the invasion, uh, when Saddam Hussein was still... Uh, on notice from President Bush to meet certain requirements. We already entered Iraq, our our SAS squadron slipped over from Jordan, and was there to seize the Scud missiles that were said to be in the Western Desert. But this again was based on um, no intelligence, there was no intelligence, these Scud missiles were said to be there, but there was no intelligence as to whether they were or not and how many and where they were. So the SAS wandered around in the desert for a while, eventually realized there was nothing they could find anywhere anyway with no information. So they then captured some base of no particular importance. After the invasion, they intercepted some of the former regime members fleeing Baghdad. That was about it, but they were given a citation for gallantry for doing that. So it was another uh, example of money and equipment being used really uh, in response to kind of political aims that are appearing to search for the weapons of mass destruction and having actually very little to do. The third one was um, an example was uh, that we sent Chinook helicopters, but these Chinook helicopters were based in Jordan a long way from the action and they were actually not equipped to safely fly into Iraq at all. They had no defence equipment to do so. So they delivered some goods to within five miles of the border, but this, all of these goods could just as easily have been delivered by US helicopters all the way, and this was, again, thought to be a rather a pointless exercise. So Palazzo says, given these examples, and... Many more, apparently, but these are the ones described in the Age uh, newspaper report. He says it wasn't possible to explain the rationale of any of these things or many other things in military terms. They appeared to be uh, of political importance, something to do with uh, how we looked rather than actually fulfilling on any kind of strategic aim. So, again, the helicopters were a waste of time there. It says also that um, the army officers serving there complained that nobody, not the Department of Defence or the Minister of Defence, nor the Chief of Defence, nor the Chief of Army, provided any sort of aims for the Australian troops there, or any strategy as to what they were supposed to do. They were just to be there. So army officers are, are used to the opposite. They're used to being given orders This is what we want to achieve, and they select what equipment they need and what troops they need to try and go about achieving it with some sort of strategy in place. But here it was the other way around. Troops are going to be sent, materials are going to be sent. We have no idea why, and you just uh, make them do something that looks interesting. I guess it was about all there was to it. So as one officer said, we did some shit for a while and things didn't get any worse, and that's all that happened. Other officers tried to sort of come up with a mission of their own based on the so-called aims of the war, but they were then not given, when they requested equipment or men to do that, they were not given that. That wasn't what they were there for. So the report concludes, in fact, that Howard joined Bush in invading Iraq simply to strengthen the Australian alliance with the US. And all the other claims that were then made by him and then later by Rudd, that we were enforcing U.S. resolutions or stopping the spread of weapons of mass destruction or stopping global terrorism or even rebuilding Iraq after the invasion. All of those things that Howard stated we were there for don't seem to have been pursued by our troops at all. That doesn't seem to be why we were there after all.
1: But all this was discredited many years ago, wasn't it really?
5: Well, it was discredited that the weapons of mass destruction were there, and it was pointed out later we didn't achieve any of these aims. But it wasn't said that we didn't even try to achieve any of them. This report says all that Howard was there for was to uh, improve the alliance with, with America or to strengthen that alliance by appearing to support them and then to appease the general public in Australia because it was an unpopular war by appearing to do things which looked good. So it was all about appearances, and this was the first time I suppose the Australian Army had actually been involved in a war, where that was their role, to look interesting or to look good, to please our allies and to please the public without actually having anything to do.
1: He also talks a little bit about Howard wanting the UN to have more say in the reconstruction and the rehabilitation of the, well, that's the
5: Howard did make some suggestions of what we could do towards some of those aims but they were not welcomed by the US and so this had a, the result of the situation deteriorating there so the, the US made some very big mistakes you probably know they, um, they allowed all this looting to take place when they first arrived they then later dismissed the whole Iraq army and the whole civil service, because civil servants were all members of the Ba'ath party. So this put out of work huge numbers of people with no prospect of regaining work, which created tremendous ferment in the country. So this was a terrible mistake. And uh, efforts to reconstruct were just token gestures by the Americans and Australia's suggestions that we make better use of UN suggestions was not followed through. So Australia had very little say, and nor should it really, because it wasn't actually doing anything. Because another finding of the report was that Howard made sure to appease the general public in Australia that our troops were never in any serious action where some of ours might be killed. So although a couple of people did die, we were not put in any harm's way, really. So one person died as you may remember, by playing Russian roulette with his gun, possibly he was just very foolish or he may have been psychiatrically disturbed. That was actually in Iraq, but he was brought home in a hero's welcome for his body and all the rest. And you remember, there was a bit of a debacle about that, wasn't there, they brought home the wrong body and the uh, Howard government didn't actually even inform the parents that it wasn't their son's body in this coffin. And so all the ceremonies were done and then the body was flown back again and the right body was brought. And the other one was somebody who died, not actually in Iraq, but in one of these helicopters that crashed in Jordan. So he wasn't anywhere where he was actually doing anything, but died really for nothing. And you probably know his widow has since been uh, very outspoken about what a waste of her husband's life that was that he died in a political exercise, really, rather than in anything of any uh, strategic importance.
1: And, of course, this report adds to many other reports by non-government organisations such as Peace Groups, such as MAPWA, M-A-P-W, which have been writing reports over those years about the consequences of this war and Australia's involvement in it.
5: Yes, but what's important about this report, though, it was written by the army itself. yes and it was or you know a body within the army and that it was uh, as i said intended originally simply as a, a textbook for officers and it had access to all of these interviews with the army officers which NGOs don't have and to all the classified documents so it has that kind of validity of being based on very thorough research it was written over a 3 year period Is considered a very well-researched document, obviously, because it did all that, but came up with these, you know, nobody's actually said there was no reason for our involvement there except to appease our allies. We weren't trying to achieve any of the so-called aims of the war. To be able to say that based on all these interviews and access to the classified documents is fairly damning, isn't it, I think?
1: Has there been any any reaction from the... The government?
5: No. Peter Codgrove, who was mentioned in it, said he couldn't possibly report on it because he's now the Governor General. And others have said, you know, they I'm not sure they've read the document yet or stuff like that. So the Age didn't have any response. And since it was published in the Age, there has been nothing more about it in our press, or no further discussion. I suppose you know that hoping it will just fade into the background. You know, it's a long time ago.
1: Yes, but it is a long time ago, but Australian troops are still in Iraq.
5: Yes, so that's the point the age made. You know, we're still there fighting, and what are we doing now? Is it any better than that? I guess probably it's not.
1: And your involvement with that war, Peter?
5: Well, yes. You know, I worked for Medicine Sans Frontieres, and I, w- I went to Iraq in 2009, which was just after this report had been written. And I didn't see anything of what the Australians had done there, of course, but I did see what kind of state the country was in. You know, we have to consider this report of this, of our support for this war, not being in a way serious support for any of the aims, but only support for looking good to please America, really. They had had much-needed support in the world community with their invasion of Iraq, and Australia offered that by offering to send these token troops, make these token gestures, uh, waste the time and effort and insult, I suppose, our army, because the army must have been pretty insulted about being used in that way and being sent with no aims and no strategy and having their troops and their training used as a kind of photo opportunity rather than anything else. We did all that, but then if you look at you know, what I saw then when I went to Iraq and what I've learned since about it, the, how destructive that war was and how likely it is that that's responsible for the really dire situation we now have in the Middle East. Our involvement was, in a way, one might say, a bit irresponsible.
1: I think you could say a bit more than a bit. Yes. Very.
5: So, you know, the report raises you know various questions. One is, is this an appropriate relationship between our government and our military? And, in fact, the military appears not to have thought so. So many of the officers reported that they found this annoying or uh, frustrating, or it made them angry, and they were unhappy about fighting a political war. It also raises the question of how did we come to be in this war, how was this decision made? And it appears to have been a decision by John Howard, then supported by his cabinet, then supported by his party, then supported by parliament, and that was that. But there was at no stage either even a cabinet debate about why we were going, let alone a parliamentary debate, let alone much in the way of a public debate. There were big protests against the war and Howard simply justified our going on the basis of all these aims that were said to be his aims but which weren't his aims after all. That's how we decided to go to that war. And that really does cause pause for thought, you know, that one man could involve us in that, in, in something that did risk and actually killed two Australians and it wasted a lots of money and lots of troops and so on, and which then had such an important and negative effect on the world. So Australia did that and supported that without anything like a parliamentary debate as to, well, what are our actual aims and what is our actual strategy there? There were no aims and there was no strategy, apart from how it looked. A second thing that it raises, how do we decide to go to war and should we review that? And the third thing, of course, is the morality of being involved in something that was so destructive. I mean, I could tell you, if if you like, I mm-hmm. could go through what I now know to be the costs of that war. We now know, and you know, the the Allies, deliberately did not keep any sort of count of civilian casualties in that war or even any estimate of casualties on the Iraqi side. But the count was kept by various groups, the Lancet in Britain, and the German Medical Association had a group called Body Count. And they have eventually concluded that during that, that invasion in 2003 and the occupation for many years afterwards, resulted in the deaths of about 1 million Iraqis directly and indirectly. So this is out of a population of about 40 million people in Iraq. We also know that several million, two or 3 million, fled the country. This included many of the doctors and paramedics and many of the university teachers left the country and have never returned. Several million more were internally displaced from their homes and into refugee camps. We don't know how many, but if a million are dead, you know, there must be a large number, more perhaps another million, who were seriously injured. You know, we shot and rocketed and burned alive huge numbers of people. So there are probably, you know, many, many people with terrible physical disabilities or facial disfigurement from all of that still alive in Iraq today. Who knows how many there are? psychologically traumatised with depression or post-traumatic stress or whatever. Large numbers of businesses failed. Many, many people lost their careers or the course they were following and large numbers were rendered unemployed and without future prospects. Also, once we'd invaded, we installed, uh, having removed the Sunni government, it was not a, a religious government, by the way, it was a, a secular government, but it was basically the Sunnis who ran Iraq. We removed the Sunnis and replaced them by Shias, many of them incompetent and corrupt. But anyway, the Shias then ran the country, and in, which included seriously persecuting all of the Sunnis who'd been dismissed from the army and the civil servants. So many Sunnis were arrested tortured and killed some of this was done by the americans as part of what they called the counterinsurgency because the sunnis on the whole represented the insurgency which was a, an objection to america being there but during the counterinsurgency we arrested and as i said imprisoned and tortured and killed many people but also um the Shias did that on a much larger scale with the knowledge of the Americans. We effectively wrecked their medical service, which had been considered the best in the Middle East. They'd had a big medical tourism industry. People came from elsewhere for surgery in Baghdad. They had quite a good tertiary education. You know, they had many excellent university courses available, which no longer exist as well. As I said, then many businesses failed and a thriving business sector was gone. Also, as everybody knows, law and order has gone. You know, it's not safe in the streets now. And the sectarian violence between sh- Shias and Sunnis, or the conflict between them, has escalated partly because of this, because of all the Sunnis being displaced from their jobs and made into pariahs and the Shias running the country who were a religious group it now is a religious government in baghdad but we know water supplies uh, just clean drinking water is hard to come by uh, electricity supplies are very unreliable we removed the despot but by doing all these most terrible things to the country and causing this um or escalating sectarian conflicts Wrecking things, And we did very little in the way of rebuilding. We went through the motions of looking like we were doing that. So now you hear terrible stories of, for example, the police and the uh, courts are often used just to extort money from people. They don't serve the people or look after people. But this is um, in recent years. Young men are arrested and tortured until they confess to something. The court finds them guilty. They continue to be tortured unless their family pay something like 100,000 US dollars, which the extended family rakes together and the person is let out of prison and flees the country. So I met people like that who'd had this happen to them. So that's the kind of law and order they now have. So when you think of all that that we did to that country and how ill-advised and destructive and stupid it was, Australia's involvement is very culpable, isn't it?
1: I often wonder whether people like Howard ever sit down and think what their actions well, led I to. i right to
5: think they did. But anyway, they actually, you know, they back like mad and, you know, Howard says he'd do it all again and so on and that it was the correct thing to do. But you see, what he did, we now know from this report, or what this report says, he simply offered token support to the Americans. He wasn't actually involved in trying to meet any of the aims. By the way, when we try to think now, why is terrorism worse? Why do they keep attacking us? It seems to me that in our media and our politicians very often say the most stupid things, like trying to attribute it all to their religion or their culture or they hate our way of life. But then if you look at what we did to them, it's not surprising, is it, that many of them hate us? They don't hate our way of life, they hate us for what we did to them.
1: And what we continue to do.
5: And what we continue to do. I mean, any five-year-old knows if you hit another kid, he or she will want to hit you back, which is what is happening. And it would happen, you know, whoever they were, whether they were Muslims or Hindus or Christians or Buddhists or whatever. If you do that to somebody's country, many of them will not like you at all. And that's the situation. Certainly, when I was in Iraq, many people expressed how much they disliked America and how very much they regretted what America had done to their country. You know, one of the controversial things, or one of the terrible things, that Saddam Hussein did was, you know, an attempted at genocide of the Kurds, including there was a famous chemical weapons attack on the Kurds. But even the Kurds now, Say Iraq is so much worse off since the Americans invaded. They were glad at first to see Saddam Hussein go, but they now say their country is such a mess and life is so hard. It's like a nightmare we can't wake up from. Is a common thing for people to say.
1: And also the fact that it was the, the West that supplied Hussein with the, the chemicals well, to did, do their dirty work.
5: that hypocrisy that we supported Saddam Hussein when he was doing things we wanted. We liked it that he was fighting Iran. We turned a blind eye to his uh, massacre of the Kurds and uh, we supplied him with weapons. Then he invaded Kuwait. We didn't like that. It interfered with oil supplies. And suddenly he was the opposite. He was a dictator that had to be eliminated for the good of the world and for the good of uh, Iraq.
1: And thanks to Dr Peter Wig for that analysis of, well, the mess that is Iraq today unfortunately. Peter is the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War Victorian Branch. It's coming up to two minutes to f- six o'clock not five o'clock six o'clock time for me to go. Coming up in just one moment will be the program done by law so I'll say bye for now.